The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. We are in chapter 2 of Ruth, which is not nearly that long. It's only like four chapters long, so we'll get through this. Chapter 2 of Ruth, if you've been paying attention as we work through this, is real turning point in the story, right? So last week we talked about she now has met Boaz. And so we know that the author is uh, piquing our interest here because everything begins to change, where everything looks so bad, uh, where everything looked very despairing. Now all of a sudden everything begins to change uh, with this guy being introduced into the story. So far up until chapter two, all we know is that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in a very desperate situation, a situation that is Full of despair. Uh, Last week, we looked at the passage that talks about this pivotal character in the story, this guy by the name of Boaz. And the reason I say that the story turns here is because even though Ruth and Naomi are in a very desperate situation, what we're going to see is that through Boaz and through his provisions and through this man's generosity, Ruth and Naomi are going to find this this new hope of, of redemption for their life. So in the passage that we're going to look at today, which is through the end of uh, chapter two, uh, Naomi gets some incredibly good news. That good news brings hope into her situation or it infuses her despair with hope. Now, when she hears the news that Ruth is going to tell her in this passage right here, that she's found favor in the eyes of one of the guys who owns this field and his name is Boaz, what you're going to find is all of a sudden, Naomi is going to be overcome with this great emotion. She's going to have this very emotional response. Now, again, when we use our little Bible reading voice and we read very quickly, we oftentimes don't read the excitement into it, but it actually has an exclamation mark. and, And you're like, you really begin to, if you see this, this is a lady who just said, call me Mara, call me bitterness. Uh, There's no hope for me. I'm dead. And now all of a sudden you see a change in her countenance just with the mention of this name. You see a change in the way that she begins to see outlook on life because of the things that she says and the things that she responds with. So there is a turning point in this story because she has received some good news. It's almost like a warm light has begun to eclipse the dark night of her soul here. And so good news has that kind of power, doesn't it? Good news has the power to cause us to rejoice, to cause us to change our countenance. Have you ever gotten good news about something? I mean, I did when they walked in and said, you passed. I was like, woohoo. I mean, my countenance changed, right? You've been there before too. You've been in a situation where you didn't know what was going to happen. You've been in a situation where maybe you thought, this is hopeless. And then all of a sudden, someone introduced some news into that that changed the whole perspective. And it changes your countenance. It changes your outlook on life. It changes your perspective. And so that's what we see here with Naomi, with this introduction of good news of the person that could change their story. Now, Again, I don't think I need to remind many of you, unless you're new to church, you may not know this, but probably the most of you that have been going to church for a while, you know that the word gospel means what? Yeah, the word gospel literally means good news. So when we're talking about the good news, we're talking about the word gospel. Now, our word gospel comes from a Latin translation of a word that is evangelion. Okay, say that with me. 
evangelion. Okay, now evangelion is the Latin word that means good news. Guess what we get out of that? Evangelism, right? Or the evangel, okay? So when we talk about evangelism, that is someone who takes good news and infuses it into people's stories. That's the way we use it. But what I want you to understand is that the word gospel has meaning before Christianity. It has meaning that was already infused into a culture. Now, actually the word in the ancient world, the gospel or an evangel was someone who was actually affiliated with the military in that day and time. And so this person would carry the news of a defeat of an enemy in a far place and they would bring that news back and let the people know exactly what had happened out there so that the people could rejoice. An especially potent example of this would be the story of Marathon. Uh, there was a battle in a city called Marathon. Now in the Greco-Persian War, there was this conflict between the Persian Empire and the city-states of Greece and it lasted from 499 to 449 BC. And this, the Greeks attempted to thwart the advances of the Persian army and really to no avail because they were so powerful in that day and time, people literally thought of them as being absolutely unstoppable. And so what happened is the Persians began to invade Greece. Well, King Darius of Persia, he sent his naval fleet there to the city. They landed really close to the city of Marathon. Now, the combined Greek forces that came together, they were led primarily by the Athenians. They showed the rest of Greece that the Persians indeed could be beat. And this was a turning point in the war for them because they had doubted previously because they had overwhelming success. So in the ancient times, when countries went off to war, you think about the citizens that were left back in the cities. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook. They didn't even have letters. They didn't have anything like that. So you knew that your sons and your husbands and your brothers went off to war, and then you would just sit and wait to hear what happened. And you might not know weeks or months later after they lost a battle and they were killed or you might get word that they were successful in battle and they would be returning home. But you can imagine as humans that we always play the worst case scenarios, don't we? And so you imagine the anxiety that builds while you're waiting to hear those things. And can you imagine the despair that would probably hover over your soul when you just sit there and think of all the bad things that are probably happening? As soon as we see somebody coming over, we're going to see an invading army. And in a moment, your life can change. Because think about this. You're either going going to see an evangel coming to proclaim a victory, or you're going to see an army marching at you, and you're about to become those people's slaves because they're about to defeat and take over your whole city. And so that's kind of the peril that you lived in. So you can understand how, how despairing it could be to live in that day and time. Now, legend has it that there was this battle of Marathon. When it ended, there was this one evangel, this messenger, and his name was, um, say it, Pheidippides. That's exactly right. I, was, I had it written out here so I could say it exactly right. But Pheidippides, say that with me. Pheidippides. Have you ever seen the name Pheidippides? There are like running stores that'll be named Pheidippides, and there are like maybe some shoes that are named Pheidippides. Well, Pheidippides is the guy who ran. Now, he ran from Marathon 
um, back so that it was roughly 26 miles, a little bit more than that. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, that's why we get our name Marathon from, because that was the city that he was running from where, this, where the battle had been won, and he literally ran the entire way. So he ran a little over 26 miles to deliver this good news that the Greeks had stopped the advancement of the Persians. Now, some stories actually say that the man dropped dead after delivering the news. And so we have statues of this guy who's reaching out, he's got it, and then he just collapses there and he dies. Which reminds you, don't ever run a marathon without training, okay? You have to put some training into that. But just imagine how powerful this proclamation would have been for the people that he delivered it to. I mean, think about the people in their situations who are wondering, did their sons make it? Did their husbands make it? Are we about to be slaves of another nation? Are we about to be overtaken? And then you see this evangel comes in and he infuses your despair with great hope. Why? Because there has been a victory and the victory benefits you. See, whenever we experience hopelessness and whenever we experience despair, the only thing that we can do from a human perspective is just try harder. That's really all we're left with. I mean, even in other religions, um, they have that mindset that we are the instruments of our own misfortune and we have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And if you're not careful, even as a follower of Christ, you'll begin to think that way. That good things happen when you do good things and bad things happen when you do bad things. And so what we have to understand is that God is above those things and that the favor of God and the love of God is not contingent on how good we are. And so over and over again, we are reminded of that throughout Scripture. And again, we're reminded of that same truth here in this story. Let's look at this verse by verse. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, after a long day's work, Ruth has been out in this field, and she has been, and a matter of fact, we know from the past passage that one of the things that Boaz is impressed with is her work ethic, right? Because she has been working nonstop, taking only a little short break is what the workers reported to Boaz. And so at this point, Boaz has already talked to her. He knows who she is. He knows that she came back with Naomi. He knows the kind of commitment that she made to Naomi. He's impressed with it. And because of that, he is blessing her with the favor that he shows towards her. And so this is the next part where she's gleaning in that field. She keeps working. He's laid out some stacks of, uh, of the um, uh, barley for, him, for her to have. In other words, it's already been harvested. It's there for her. It's already in the sheep. And she, all she has to do is shake it. Um, beat it out basically means you're, you're getting the chaff away from it. If she was to take all of that back with her, she would literally have hundreds of pounds worth of stuff to carry. So she only wants to take what's necessary. So that's why she's beating that stuff out of there. So she has just the product that she wants when she walks away from there. And that's what's happening right here at this point. The text says that she had gathered about an ephah of barley there in verse 17. Now the result is nothing short than amazing because what she has gathered in one day is what we know traditionally speaking someone would gather in over half of a month okay so she in one day gathers as much grain as someone would gather literally in two and a half weeks three weeks 
and she did it in one day. So it's absolutely amazing. She has this big old huge, I don't know where she put it. Maybe she had a bag, a big sack, but it had to be at least 50 pounds of just the kernels of the grain. And that's an amazing thing right there because not only is she provided for with food, but she's going to have so much that her and Naomi can sell this or trade it for other things that they need. This is absolutely amazing. And it continues in verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had, what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Go back to our study last week. Remember Boaz, as they were eating, it seems that he invited her over to come eat with the rest of them. And they had not only grains, but they had baked food, right? They had baked bread. And so he invites her over and she comes in and eats and drinks with them. And he said, hey, whatever you have left over, just take it home with you. So imagine this. You sent out this little Moabite girl and you're hoping that she can find some favor that someone would allow them, allow her to get enough grain for her to bring back so that you can make enough bread that you can satisfy yourself for a day. And all of a sudden you see this Moabite girl coming back and she has a sack on her back that she can barely carry. And she has a to-go box uh, uh, with her as well that's already cooked. And you're sitting there going, what in the world happened? Who did you rob? Are we going to be in trouble here? I mean, that's exactly what's happening here with these questions that she asked. Look at verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Because you have not only... The, the, the actual kernels, you have baked food. You had to do two things to do that. How in the world did you get this? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. So Ruth comes home. She gives Naomi all of her leftovers from the big meal that Boaz had with them earlier that day. And with the ephah of barley and the leftovers that Ruth had brought in, Naomi figures out very quickly that some special favor has been shown to Ruth at this point. And so she begins to ask, what is the source of this favor? Where did this come from? How did you, how did you get this? Who gave this to you? So it's very clear to Naomi that Ruth's work at gleaning, just, just her going out there gleaning, could never, ever have brought this kind of reward. Some favor was necessary for her to have this kind of success. So Naomi's two questions here might seem a little bit redundant, but they're very intentional. Uh, where did you glean and where did you work? They sound like basically the same question, but how many of you are parents? Hey, it's a few of you, okay. Some of you don't want to admit it. You're like, mm, am I going to have to work in the children's ministry if I raise my hand? No, I'm just kidding. So what happens is when you come home and, and the house is a wreck, right? Don't you start asking one question out of another that's redundant because you're just, you're, you're frustrated. You're, you're bl you can't believe what's happening. You're like, who, who did this? Where did you get this from? What were you thinking? Or you ask this like a uh, drive-by shooting, you know, it's like a do-do-do-do-do with questions. You're just throwing them out there. Nobody can answer it. You're just throwing one question after another. And so that's the picture that we have here. She's coming in. She's blown away. She can't believe that she's brought home all of this. And she's probably thinking, awesome, we have all this stuff. And then she's 
she's beginning to think, I hope she didn't steal it. I hope somebody's not taking advantage of her and gave her this. And then come back and says, oh, you stole it. We're going to take advantage of this person. She has no idea what's going to happen here. But then she goes, well, you know what? Blessed is the man who gave this to you. I hope we have his true blessing here. So even though Naomi asked where Ruth has worked, where she has been gleaning, Notice how Ruth responds. She doesn't respond telling her any kind of geographical location. She responds by telling her a name that she worked with Boaz. Now, realizing the significance of of Ruth by chance, finding this field that Boaz, who she knows is actually a relative of her dead husband, Elimelech, she now breaks out into praise of God. Now, I want you to think again, this is the same woman who just a few verses back said, call me Mara. This is the same woman who said, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. This is the woman who said, listen, I'm as good as dead and anybody who comes with me, you're as good as dead too. This is the same woman. And now look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so she first issues this blessing for Boaz, recognizing his kindness. But the majority of what she says here, the majority of this this exclamation and this praise is really concerned with rejoicing in the fact that God has demonstrated kindness to them. That God has demonstrated good favor. That God has not forsaken them. That he's not abandoned his kindness to them. Now, this kindness is the same one. If you remember, we go back to chapter 1. We looked at verse 8. And if you remember or recall our study from there, I made a big deal about that word because it's translated into our English as kindness or loving kindness. But it's actually a Hebrew word, hesed. Y'all remember us talking about that? So this is the same word that's used here. And it's saying that in this instance, God has faithfully demonstrated hesed. He's demonstrated loving kindness. But what does Naomi mean when she says that God has not abandoned his hesed, his loving kindness towards the living and the dead? Well, the living in this context would have to be who? Well, it'd have to be Naomi and Ruth, right? And then who would be the dead? Well, the deceased would be Elimelech and Malon and and Kilion. So I want you to notice that this is a turning point in the story simply because this is a turning point from Naomi's previous perspective of herself and of Ruth. She told her, there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Remember when they were on their way back and she told these girls, y'all go back to Moab and and go back to your people and worship your gods because there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. I'm as good as dead. And if you go there, you're dead as well. But now all of a sudden, hope has been infused into her circumstances and she counts herself among the living. Do you see that? I mean, this story is changing right before our eyes because this speech that she uses, it represents a total turnaround from from the despairing and the accusatory words that she used right back in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. So instead of despair, Naomi now has hope. Why does Naomi now have hope? Because she knows who Boaz is. 
And I, I'm telling you, like Boaz, she knows Boaz is not just a family member. He is a prominent family member, okay? Now, Boaz isn't some Uncle Bubba over there. He is a guy who has authority. He is a guy who has wealth. He is a guy who is a mover and a shaker in that culture. And she knows that he's related to her dead husband, Elimelech. And so when Naomi learns that Ruth has met up with Boaz, it's almost like the sun rises on her life again. Uh, Yahweh has been gracious to her deceased husband is the way she sees it. Yahweh has been gracious to her deceased sons. Why? Because he has sent favor from a potential kinsman redeemer. And he sent this right into the very midst of their lives in a completely unexpected way. All right, now let me just say this. Just this introduction here, there's a whole lot of other things that still have to happen for this to go the direction that would be the most favorable for Ruth and for Naomi. But just the fact that there's a possibility that this story could change has already overwhelmed Naomi because she thought she was as good as dead. Now, the word redeemer that's used here in this text is the Hebrew word goel, okay? Now, it actually talks about a relative who is responsible for the well-being, the overall well-being of a family, their economic well-being, their safety, their protection, and especially comes into play when the family is in distress or for some reason they can't get out of crisis. So there were certain responsibilities that the scripture talks about in Leviticus and in Numbers, um, also mentioned in Jeremiah and Psalms and Job, where we know that there are these certain things that this type of redeemer or this goel would be responsible for. One of them is to ensure that property stayed within the family. The second thing was that they maintained the freedom of slaves by buying back those who are caught in slavery. Because what would happen is if a family found themselves bankrupt, they would have to sell themselves into slavery to become someone's slave to pay off a debt. Well, then they can't ever get out of that. So part of the Redeemer's uh, responsibility is they would have to step into that situation and redeem that person or purchase them back out of their slavery. The third thing is to track down and execute murderers of near relatives. So if they have had someone who has come in, an enemy has come in and wrongly killed members of the family because of some dispute or whatever, then it is this person's uh, right and responsibility to redeem that person and also to bring a restitution and revenge to anyone who has come against them. The fourth thing is to receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. So if someone died and it was a crime scene that they died at, then it was the Redeemer's responsibility to go and make sure that justice was served. And the fifth thing was to ensure that justice is served in a lawsuits and anything where they were accused of something and they couldn't afford to represent themselves or they couldn't afford to pay whatever it is. It was the responsibility of the Redeemer to come in and take care of that situation. So those are the different elements that we have seen the Redeemer throughout the Old Testament function. Okay. Now here's the thing, I think you've already seen it, that Jesus serves as that kind of Redeemer for each one of us, right? 
He's the one who comes in and defeats Satan. Why? Because Satan has come in and, and he's killed us, basically. We're spiritually dead because of the temptation and the sin that he tempted with us, and we bought into that. We sold ourselves into slavery, and yet we could not get out, and he has redeemed us. So over and over, all these different pictures of a redeemer, we also see in the life of Christ what he came to do for us. And so this Israelite provision... This redeemer that we see in the Old Testament, especially in the law. Uh, one commentator says it this way. It's based on an assumption of a corporate solidarity and the sanctity of the family. To offend a relative is to offend oneself. The custom of redemption was designed to maintain the wholeness and health of family relationships even after the person had died. So it is the person's responsibility to make sure the family continues, that they have what they need, and that they are safe and secure in that process. Naomi now has hope because she believes that the loving kindness, the chesed of God that is being shown to her, she believes that Boaz might be this redeemer for them and that he might be the one who can make her family whole again, that he might be the one who can right this ship, that he might be the one to keep them from going into financial ruin. All right, so I want you to understand that perspective. Now look at verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, a couple of things there, just because it changes from being with his men to being with his women, there's no controversy in that. The men were the ones who would actually do the harvest. The women were the ones who came through and gleaned after it was all cut down. So when he was saying, stay with my men, he was basically saying, stay in my field. They're the ones that will be harvesting my field. And she's saying, yes, that's a great idea. Follow and stay very closely to his women. In other words, the ones who will be working his field, picking up what the harvesters have gone and cut down. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's part of it, and that's what she's saying. You need to, and it also reminds us of the, this is the time of the judges, right? Go back to the very first verse, and it set, tells us it sets the time and the culture of when this story took place during the time of the judges. What does it say at the end of the book of Judges? The book of the Judges tells us that this was a time period when every man did what was right in his own eye because Israel had no king. And we talked about how Ruth is an answer to that, that through the story of Ruth, King David comes. Okay, So this is an answer to the story of the problem or dilemma that's presented to us in the book of Judges. But at the end of it, we also know every man does what's right in his own eyes. And so there's the danger of the culture that they lived in. You need to stay very close as women because you might be assaulted in another field. And you know the culture that we live in, you might not be safe out there. So God has presented you with some provisions. Stay close to those who can protect you. And so she sees it as not only God working with his loving kindness, but God also offering uh, these avenues of protection for her as well. Also notice that it says it's for both the barley and the wheat harvest. Well, the barley harvest is in April. The wheat harvest isn't until June. So we know that she went and she gleaned every single day during these times and you imagine if he was this generous to her throughout that time period, when she got done, she had so much 
wheat and so much barley that they would have been taken care of for a very long period of time. Notice in verse 1 also that the, the author refers to Ruth as the Moabite again. And he's done that several times throughout. He keeps reminding us. That it's almost like he doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that she is a foreigner. Uh, maybe he's reminding us of what is obvious to Naomi in this passage may not be all that obvious to Ruth. What immediately Naomi recognizes and rejoices over, Ruth doesn't really seem to get it as fast, right? She's like, oh, yeah, uh, his name is Boaz. Boaz, one of our redeemers. Oh, well, he said also I could just stay real close with it. Oh, you have no idea what just happened. And so that seems to be part of it as well. Maybe that's why she doesn't seem to understand to the same capacity the things that Naomi does. Um, maybe the author just wants to shock us. Who knows? But Boaz invites Ruth to stay in his fields until the end of the harvest season. And Naomi, obviously, from her response, loves this idea. Not just the hope of being redeemed, but the fact that they're going to be taken care of, that they're going to have food to last them for a long time, and they have something to sell in the marketplace or to trade for things that were going to be vital for their existence. So the harvest would have lasted six or seven weeks. Now let's take a moment to revisit our study on the book of Romans and let's see some parallels that run right along with what we've read here. Now in Ruth chapter 2, remember that Naomi seems helpless. She seems despairing. She sees no hope in sight. But then out of nowhere, hope interrupts that despairing situation. And so where there once was no hope, now all of a sudden we see great hope. And Naomi doesn't see exactly how God's going to do the work. He doesn't see, she doesn't see exactly how God's going to work everything out. But she has seen enough that she's now looking for God's providence. Do you see that? Like she didn't think anything would ever work out. Now all of a sudden she sees these things coming together that she never would imagine ever would have come together. And now she's beginning to look for God's providence in those situations. How her story has changed. Naomi doesn't understand everything that's happening, but now she's beginning to look for how God is working around her. Well, we could learn a lot from that lesson, couldn't we? I mean, how many of us find ourselves in despairing situations and all we look at is the despairing situation? We find ourselves in a difficulty and all we can see is the difficult circumstances. And you know what we need to learn from this is to begin to look up and not just at what's happening around us, but to pick our eyes up and begin to look for God's providence around us. Because one thing that we know is God doesn't waste any of our experiences in life. No matter if it's a tragedy that's happening to us because of bad decisions we've made or maybe bad decisions that someone else has made, what happens is God uses all of that for his glory and to grow us into his image and to make us more like him. He's using it to show us how he's faithful to all his promises, how he's loving towards all that he has made. So if you go to Romans chapter 4, what we find is Paul uses a very specific story about Abraham as a case study of what it means to have hope and faith in the midst of a hopeless situation. Um, Abraham was promised that he would be the heir of many nations and that his offspring would inherit the earth. But the scripture tells us very clearly that Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead with respect to procreation. Why? Because they were so old. They were beyond the years that she could get pregnant. They were beyond the years that she could bear a child. And she's been barren her entire life. 
And so even though they had this promise, they were in a situation where they were as good as dead. Very similar to that, what we see in Ruth, um, Abraham and Sarah were also struggling to see how this next generation could be redeemed. Uh, So this means that they were without any hope in regards to the future, as there was not going to be anyone to inherit all the good blessings that God had given to Abraham. And so even after they received the promise of God, they still found themselves in despair And Sarah was barren, and she was old, and there was no way, humanly speaking, that what God had promised could ever come to fruition. Even if God had opened up her womb, the chances of her being able to conceive at that age were very, very minimal. And even then, 10 years went by before the birth of this miracle child. But notice what it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. But it was in hope that Abraham believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as what? Which is as good as dead since he was 100 years old, right? Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Do you see the similarities here? The story Paul's talking about, Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead. Our story here in Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, they were as good as dead. But yet God had been working in the background of life. And where they thought there was nothing reigning in their life but death and destruction, God was bringing fruitfulness and provision. Do you see this? See, Abraham didn't always live out his faith well, did he? Did Abraham get all of this stuff and have all these promises because he was a good and righteous man? No, this guy was a pagan idol worshiper when God found him and called him out of that into a relationship with the Almighty. It was Abraham that was scared to death to tell anyone that Sarah was his wife, so he lied about it. It was Abraham that took his family back to Egypt when God told him, don't go back to Egypt. It was Abraham who said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, Sarah. I'll take Hagar as my handmaid, and we'll, have, we'll help God out here. Over and over and over again, we see him making mistakes. So God didn't choose him. God wasn't faithful to him. God didn't infuse his despairing situation with hope because he deserved it. I love how one commentator said it, talking about Abraham. He says, but in spite of all this, his faith was never extinguished. He hung on to God's promises, even in his own flaws and failings. I hope that you hear hope in that today. I hope that you hear hope that God's not going to be good to you because you deserve someone to be good to you. God's going to be good to you because God is good. That's his nature. It's his character. God's never done something for you because you deserved it. God's done something for you because of his said, his loving kindness. It's who he is. And so what we need to do is no matter where we've been or what we've done, no matter what kind of situations we've found, or no matter what mistakes we've made in the past, we can't sit there and go, well, God can't love me. Well, God will never show any favor to me. Guess what? He never would have anyway because you never deserved it. God does that because that's who God is. That is his said. And when we understand that, what happens is we can read through these scriptures and hold on to promises that we don't deserve to hold on to. We can stand on promises of scripture that we don't deserve to have as a foundation for our life. Why? Not because of us, because of him. 
because of his said. You know, even though we can see that Abraham and Sarah held on to this promise, that's one disconnection we have here because the same thing can't be said about Naomi. I mean, Naomi makes it clear she had lost all hope. I mean, not only was her situation dire, she had accepted it as this is the way it's going to be the rest of my life. She was angry with God. She was bitter with God. She even went as far as to consider herself as among the dead. But in chapter 2, her despair is interrupted by hope. Just as Abraham's despair was interrupted by hope with this promise that God had given to him and his wife about the birth of Isaac. And so one other comparison that we find from Abraham in Ruth chapter 2 that connects with what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4 is this. When Naomi says that the Lord's kindness has not forsaken them, that's actually a direct parallel from something in Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 24, verse 27. See, after Abraham's servant had discovered Rebekah, who is a potential wife, for his miracle son, Isaac, right? Now think about that for a moment. This is what it says in Genesis 24, 27. Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his, what does it say? His steadfast, his his said. Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his, his said, his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. So even though God had provided a son to Abraham, all of this would have been for nothing if Isaac couldn't find a wife that this whole line could continue from. And so God did not forsake Abraham, but instead he displayed loving kindness. He displayed his said, and it was in his said, in God's loving kindness, that Abraham found hope. He found hope. A guy by the name of Pete Hamill wrote an article that was printed in 1971. It was later turned into a song, very famous song, became famous throughout the world, actually. Um, and then even a short uh, film was, was built on this, uh, this piece. As the story begins, envision this with me, a guy who's been in prison for four years, he gets out. He's a convict, all he's known is being inside for four years. He gets out, and he gets on a bus, and he starts heading home. Well, on this same bus are some young people, some young men and some young women. So they're going from New York, and these young people are traveling all the way to Fort Lauderdale. Well, they notice this man who's sitting there all by himself, and he just seems to be just sitting there, and you can see kind of a wear and tear on his body and his soul in the sense of just his, his appearance and his countenance, and he's sitting there. So one of the young girls decides she's going to talk to him and kind of try and see if she can get a conversation going. And she finds out that his name is Vingo. And so the kids are become interested as Vingo has told him a little bit about his life. And they asked him, are you married? And he looked and he paused for a moment and he said, I don't know. And they looked at him and said, you don't know? And he said, well, when I was in prison, I wrote to my wife. And this is what he said. I told her, I said, Martha, I understand if you can't stay married to me. I told her that. I said, I was going to be away for a long time. And that if she couldn't stand it, if the kids kept asking questions, if it hurt too much, well, she could just forget me, get a new guy. She's a wonderful woman, really something. She could get a new guy and just forget about me. 
I told her she didn't have to write me or anything, and she didn't, not for three and a half years. And you're going home now not knowing? Shyly, he responded, yes. Well, last week when I was sure that the parole was going to come through, I did write her a letter. I told her that if she had a new guy, I understood. But if she didn't, and if she wanted to take me back, that she should let me know. We used to live in this little town called Brunswick. It's just before Jacksonville, heading south. And there's this big oak tree just as you come into town. It's a very famous tree, huge. I told her that if she would take me back, that she would put a yellow handkerchief on the tree. And if I saw that yellow handkerchief on that tree, then I would get off of the bus and I would come home. But if I didn't see the yellow handkerchief on the tree, then I would know that I needed to just stay on the bus and keep going to wherever that bus would take me. Wow, the girl said. Wow. So the story begins to create a buzz on the bus. Everyone is talking about this, and everyone is anticipating because the bus is getting closer and closer to Brunswick. They're only a few miles away. And then all of a sudden, all the young people were up out of their seats. They were screaming. They were shouting. They were crying. They were doing these small little dances that young people do, shaking clenched fists in triumph and exultation, all except Vingo, who sat there stunned in silence, looking at the tree as the bus approached it. And it looked like this. It was covered with yellow handkerchiefs, 20, 30, maybe 100. The tree was like a banner of welcome, flailing in the wind, blowing, and turned into this gorgeous blur as the bus goes by. Imagine everything that this man, this convict, had gone through. Imagine what his perspective would have been. He spent four years in jail not knowing whether or not he would ever see his wife or kids again. Even if he got out, he was still despairing, not knowing whether his wife had ever even gotten his letter or if she would even respond. Imagine how much turmoil it would be going on that bus ride, getting closer and closer to this destination, anxiety growing in you and fully expecting not to see anything. And that's what you see. Imagine the wave of emotions that hit him when he sees a tree, not with one handkerchief, but covered with them, when all of a sudden hope infused his despair. See, in the midst of our despair, our culture tells us, man, just trust in your own works. Some churches will even teach this called a prosperity gospel where you know, if you do enough, God will honor you. If you do enough, God will do something for you. Buck up, get out there, change your lifestyle, try something new, get some counseling. There's hope within you. You just got to pull yourself out of your despair. But you see, the, the despair and the hopelessness that we experience in this life, a lot of times it's, it's like bingo. It's, it's a result of our own sin. You see, God didn't create this world with the intention of us experiencing this despair. We brought sin into the world. And we oftentimes, we're the ones who make the choices to bring it into our own lives. And when we do, we all experience the despair that results from it. We should never just accept despair as a force that we just succumb to 
like was Naomi's perspective in the beginning of the story. We have to fight it. Here's the problem, though. If we fight the despair that we're going through, and the source of the despair is the sin within us, we don't have what it takes to fight the source because it's inside of us. And so, therefore, we'll never find hope on our own. So we have to look to a hope outside of ourselves that can pull out the sin that has its grasp on us. Sin is like a gravity in our nature that keeps pulling us back into despair. And we don't have the power to defy that gravity that's working within our soul. But the gospel says that God's love isn't based on conditions. It's based on Christ. It's based on grace. The gospel tells us that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save us. He's paid for our salvation in full through his blood on the cross. We don't have to do anything in order to have hope. Hope is something that we receive when we have faith in Christ and when we put our trust in him. Christians have hope in the midst of despair. You know why? Because an evangel has come from the battle and he's brought the good news to us. And he said, you can be free. The battle's over. We won. We won. The gospel gives us the free gift of the love and the grace of Christ. It's in the gospel that God comes down to lift us up. It's true that our sin separates us from God. It's true that because of sin that we are all separated from God and we have no hope. And no hope of a future, no hope of redemption, no plan for security in our lives. We were in the same situation that Naomi found herself in. Separation from God creates hopelessness. It creates despair. And when we come face to face with it, we think, you know what? I'm as good as dead. And we were. However, in the midst of our sin and despair, God interrupts our life with hope. Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again, not just for our hope, not just for our salvation, because Christ didn't die just so that we could be saved from our sins. Christ died so that we could be saved to glory. Christ didn't die just for us to be saved from something. He died so that we could be saved to something. And so Christ is the one who gives us our future. He's the one that offers redemption. He's the one that offers restoration. He's the one that is our kinsman redeemer who brings us back into the family, who fights our battles for us. He's the one who makes sure that we are taken care of. He's the one that makes sure that we are provided for. He's the one that brings us out of our despair because he infuses our life with hope. Have you ever been there? I don't know what kind of junk you brought in here today, but I'll just be honest with you, I bring mine every week. And sometimes if I'm not careful, I'll let that junk be the focus of, of what I think and what I do. And sometimes I'll even get distracted from the songs that we sing or a message that I might preach. 
It's very easy for us in our human condition to only look at what's happening around us, but the gospel calls us to lift your head to see your redemption is drawing near. And your redemption is from your kinsman redeemer who is coming to make things new again for you. Amen? There's hope for you. No matter where you are, there's hope for your soul. Let's pray together. God, thank you for being the one who defends us. Lord, thank you for your love that defends us in these battles that we find with our flesh and the world and the enemy. Lord, there's so many things that would seek to devour us, but Lord, you are that kinsman that oversees us, that provides us with protection. Lord, I don't know where everyone is in their spiritual walk here today. There have been many here who probably have been walking with you for a long time. And and Lord, there are some probably that today was the first day that they heard the gospel and it sunk into their life. Lord, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. I pray that they would not be able to leave this place without talking to somebody, whoever they came with, the person sitting next to them, or for them to grab a pastor and say, I just want someone to pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would have your way with our hearts because you have done so much to rescue us and to bring us out of our bondage to sin. Lord, let us not despair any longer, but allow the evangel, the evangelism of the good news coming into our heart, declare and infuse our suffering and our despair with hope that you can make sense of it all. Lord, you never promised us that life would be easy here, but you did promise us that this life is but a vapor of what you have for us that is to come. Lord, help us to take our eyes off the temporal and to remember the eternal. That's who you are. That's what you wanna do in each one of us. So Holy Spirit, have your way with us. As we leave this place today, may we be thinking about what you have taught us and what you have said to our hearts and soul. May we remember the promises that we've underlined, written down from your scripture. Lord, as we go out singing, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our great defender and how you love us with a hesed, loving kindness. In Jesus' name.